Hello and welcome to another episode of Two Guys and a Chainsaw. I'm Todd. And I'm Craig. Today's movie is 1997's Cube, a uh, Canadian film that was shot pretty cheaply. Like, uh, I don't even think it cost a half a million bucks. However, it did gross quite a bit of money, uh, spawned a few sequels, and is a bit of a cult following, wouldn't you say? Yeah, apparently, because I think it did pretty well internationally in theaters. Like, I don't think it made much of an impact in the States, but... I think it grossed something like uh, close to $9 million or something like that internationally. But yeah, it wasn't until it kind of gained that cult following that they went forward with uh, a sequel and a prequel. So there are three of them out there. Yeah, three of them out there. Have you seen all three, Craig? I have this feeling that you're going to say yes. Yep, I've seen all three. They're good. (laughs) I don't remember when I saw the first one. It came out. 97 that's the year I graduated high school I don't think that I saw it that early but I did see it and I liked it from the first viewing and I've actually sat and watched it a few times probably and uh the sequels uh, I liked too the second one I can only imagine was shot on a little bit bigger budget because it seemed more high tech and uh, I remember liking it I, I don't remember the details about the sequel or the prequel except for that the prequel went into a little bit more about the origins of the concept and, and that kind of stuff. But uh, I remember enjoying all of them and I was excited to do this one. I feel like we've talked about doing it several times uh, and we've had at least one request for it. And so when we were deciding what we wanted to do today, we thought we would, uh, jump in since it was request and watching it again i i still thought it was good uh i don't know that it's necessarily aged as well as some things that we've seen but um i think that the strongest thing about the movie is the premise i think it's a really interesting premise and one that works really well for a semi-low budget movie because really the entire thing is shot on one 15 by 15 by 15 square foot set like the, yeah. the whole the whole thing is 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 literally shot in one room of course through movie magic they make you seem like it's uh, a lot of different rooms but in reality it was just one it plays pretty well i, I think it's a, a pretty cool concept you know i read in the trivia on um i think it was in the wikipedia entry that the old Twilight Zone episode, Five Characters in Search of an Exit, was the initial inspiration for this movie. And that is one of my all-time favorite Twilight Zone episodes, where five characters who seem are seemingly unrelated with different jobs and different roles suddenly wake up and don't remember how they got there, but they find themselves in a very, very small place and are looking for a way out. And that's really what this is all about. This is this, like you said, this cubed room uh, that then has four, six hatches in it, one for each side mm-hmm. in the middle. And uh, you can climb to eat, you know, to the ceiling. You can drop through the floor and it leads to another cubed room. Yep. And as we learn out later in the movie that there are a lot of these rooms all connected into one giant cube. Right. So the movie is aptly titled. And so that's really, I think it's a very premise-driven movie. They do some interesting things with characterization in here. I have to say, uh, well, it was interesting reading a little bit about the history of the development of the script on Wikipedia. Vincenzo Natali is the writer-director, and he had this initial inspiration um, to set, uh, make a film set in hell, <laughs> which is right. kind of where these characters find themselves in, right? Uh, not literally, but, uh, you know, you're trapped and you can't get out and you may never, ever get out. And there was going to be a cannibal in here, some edible moss that grew in the walls, this real concern that they had to eat and drink that would be an aspect of the film, uh, and some kind of monster that roamed throughout. The guy uh, eventually credited as the writer for the film, his name is Andre Bijelic. And this is the only thing that we can see that he's done, uh, helped him strip this down and just kind of make it this bare premise, which probably works a little bit better and certainly a lot easier to shoot because the way that they denote these different rooms in the cube from one to another is just they change the color of the walls. Right. 
they're all lit from behind uh, with gels. And so apparently they shot all the ones that would take place in red rooms first, and then they changed the gels to green and shot all the scenes that would take place in a green room next and and kind of shot the movie in that order. But yeah, like you said, it's a real easy way to save some bucks. But again, it's a very premise-driven movie. It's an interesting premise. It's an interesting concept. Yeah, and then they try to characterize, throw some characters in. I, I think for me, this isn't really my favorite film. I think the thing that really holds it back for me is the character development sure. and the acting. <laughs> I, I feel like some of the acting's just a little overblown, especially by our one character who kind of turns evil. I couldn't really get behind him. I felt he was really just hamming it up the whole time. Right. I remembered that from my, the first time I saw this. I think the first time I saw this was back in 97, 98. This is only the second time I've seen it, but that's the one thing I remembered about this movie the most was this one actor is totally hamming it up, and uh, it took me out of it quite a bit. It made it seem like a lower budget production, even than it really was. So, <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, I can I can see that, and I think that you're right. Critics were were kind of mixed. You know, it, it got some praise. It even won uh, a few awards. But the critics who had some problems with it kind of felt the same way that you did. With, though it's an interesting premise, uh, it's lacking a little bit in characterization and. Um, some people are a little bit disappointed that the y- you never really know what's going on. Yeah, um, I mean, I mean, these characters speculate as to what might be happening to them and why. And there's a l- tiny little bit of very foggy explanation, um, but ultimately, you never know. Like you said, these these. And that's how it opens up. The, the The first thing we see is this guy wakes up in this room, just this big square room, and it looks like the design reminds me of the puzzle box from... Oh, yeah. Um, Hellraiser, the, around the outside. Like if you were inside? Yeah. Yeah, that's <laughs> like true. If you, like if you were inside that box, that's, that's what I kind of imagine it looking like. And this guy, you know, he wakes up alone. We don't know anything about him. He he looks around and he eventually opens up one of those hatches and uh, he goes into the next room and he's standing there and we just hear kind of this quick noise, kind of this swooshing noise. And then all of, a, all of a sudden he just starts to fall apart. And as it turns out, he's been sliced, cubed or diced or whatever you want to call it um, by this wire trap. And then it cuts to the title. And then we have, we see another guy asleep in this room, seemingly the same room, but we find out, of course, later that it's not. And somebody else comes into the room and they're all dressed in like these kind of industrial like overalls that have their last names printed on them. And right away... Um, which also may kind of be a weakness, I, I guess you could say, because everything happens really quickly in the beginning. All of our principal characters come together and nobody knows why they're there. Nobody knows where they are. They can't remember how they got there, but they're seemingly trapped in there. And then it just becomes kind of this uh, character study of what it would be like if you were trapped kind of in this rat maze with a bunch of strangers who you know nothing about. So there are, of course, trust issues. And and that was one of the things that I thought was interesting about the movie, too, is that we, as the audience, are as in the dark as the people in the movie. Just like the people in the movie, you just kind of have to believe what people tell you because what choice do you have? <laughs> yeah. Um, the the main guy that you were talking about that ends up kind of becoming, I mean, ultimately the device, the cube itself and, and the entity, whatever it is behind it is, I guess, kind of the antagonist, but really it becomes more of just a human nature thing where yeah. the one guy that you were talking about, Quentin, he kind of starts to lose it as it becomes kind of Lord of the Flies, every man for himself yeah. kind of deal. But this guy, Quentin, when he does introduce himself, he tells them that he is a cop. They just roll with it. And I, I thought that it was good that through the whole movie, I was wondering, is this guy really a cop? Because I don't know if I buy it. Yeah, yeah. We, it, we, we never find out if he is or not. He doesn't handle pressure very well. No. <laughs> he missed that bit of training. Yeah, for sure. Right. Like, and he keeps, you know, spouting off something that might have been better spoken by action, which is I can read people like a book. Like I can just stare at someone's eyes and I know who they are. 
which isn't actually quite true, but he's convinced of it. And he just is, like I said, kind of over the top from the very beginning. I think one thing that maybe makes it more convincing that he's a cop is he immediately recognizes one of the other characters, an older guy named Ren. I don't believe it. (laughs) This guy's the Ren. The what? He's the Ren. The bird of Attica flew the coop on six major prisons. Seven. You're kidding, right? You can get us out. Maybe. An escape artist. Yeah, Harry fucking Houdini. And, and that's the thing. Like, they all come together, um, and there are six of them, not including the guy that we saw get killed right at the beginning. And, in fact, that guy that we get see killed right at the very beginning, they never come across him. So no. we don't even know that guy could have been in this place in an entirely different time. Mm. We have no idea. But there's six of them. There's Quentin. He's either black or Hispanic, uh, and, and he's like the tough guy. There's Worth, who is this younger-looking guy. He, from the very beginning, I thought was kind of shady. Like, he claims that he's a little bit out of it because he hit his head or something. Mm-hmm. Um, but he's just initially pretty quiet. And then there's a lady whose last name is Holloway, and she appears to be pretty transparent. Um, yeah. She claims that she's a doctor, and and I believe her. I don't know. She's got some kind of accent. I couldn't really figure out where she was from. Then uh, another, a younger girl, and when I say younger, I don't mean like a child, like, like college probably age. 20s. Yeah. yeah, and her name is Levin, and it turns out that she's kind of this math whiz. Ren, who you mentioned, who is who supposedly is an expert at breaking out of places. And and we meet all of them first. But I did think that it was funny because Ren comes into the picture and immediately kind of keeps them moving along. And I feel like everybody else kind of follows him just because they don't know what else to do. Mm-hmm. He has figured out that some of these rooms are trapped and he's using his shoes, his boots. Um, he tosses them in the room to see if a trap gets triggered. And if it doesn't get triggered, then they assume that they can proceed. And right away, he opens one hatch and he says, oh, wait a minute. The air smells funny in here. I think it's some kind of like biochemical triggered trap, which I don't know about prisons. I've never been in one, but (laughs) I didn't know that any of them might have had like biochemical sensors, but apparently maybe they do because this guy knows about it. I found it kind of funny and ironic that this guy who's, you know, the expert at breaking out of places, he then immediately gets dispatched. Yeah. I don't remember why. What was it? There there was something that he didn't see coming, some trap that he didn't... He leaped in there, and uh, there was a spray on his face. And he goes, Mared. <laughs> and it's, some spray comes into his face, and I guess they decided it might have either been a sound base trap or something. I don't know exactly what it was. But yeah, he ends up triggering this trap. He gets sprayed in the face. They pull him back in and he completely loses his face. It's probably the goriest thing that we see in the movie aside from the the intro. Right. With that guy who just falls into pieces. He's immediately out of the picture. It's kind of funny, like you said, because he's supposed to be the expert and he's the first one to go. It's, it's pretty smart writing. Right. And it, it increases the tension a little bit because mm-hmm. these other people are just Joe Schmoes. You know, they don't know anything and it's not as though i feel like what the movie tries to do and it fails a little bit is they're kind of trying to throw these various characters together so that any one of them is kind of an everyman like Mm. i think that you're supposed to kind of think oh well if they could be in there it could be me the the characters have discussions about why are we here? Why us? What is this? What is the purpose of this thing? Um, and as much as they kind of philosophize about it, there's little basis for it. <laughs> right. They, they, they theorize, but they don't know. Yeah. And they don't find out. And neither do we. Yeah. That's I'm okay with it. It doesn't bother me because I, I think that what it's supposed to be is more about human nature, kind of an allegory about human nature and survival. You know, ultimately, what will you do to survive, even if that means at the cost or expense of other people? Yeah. And, and that's that's all kind of epitomized through Quentin. And again, I feel like that's just kind of uh, a weakness because... 
he becomes clearly the bad guy. Yeah. And everybody else is just kind of fine. A lamb for the slaughter. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's like if he weren't there or he got dispatched early on, everybody kind of would have gotten along more or less. That's the sense Mm -hmm. you get. So it's not like a a true Lord of the Flies situation. It's not a very skillfully woven tapestry of conflict and controversy between these people. And I think that's a failing of this film is that other, other movies have really done it better. And in this case, because so much of the action of the movie, the, the, the thrust of the movie kind of relies on that. I don't know. I just, it just, after a while, it just kind of got a little tedious for me to watch. I, and I, and you know, when you're watching a movie like this, there's sometimes this promise that there's a puzzle behind it. And there's a bit of a puzzle behind it. Obviously they have no idea where they're going. They're just testing rooms for traps and trying the ones where there's not one. But who's to say that the right way out of this thing is through all the traps, you know? Right. Nobody really knows. Um, But at some point, Levin, who comes across as a student, she has a very funny explanation for who she is or why she's not so important. Levin, what are you? Nothing. I just go to school. I hang out with my friends. What else? There is nothing else. My parents are these people. I live with them. I'm boring. But then I think kind of improbably, Quentin notices that Levin has her glasses on her. And occasionally she's putting them on. And he asks her, what are these for? Why aren't you wearing them? She says, oh, I just wear them for reading. And he says, well, so-and-so, Holloway, her jewelry was stripped off of her, which I guess they talked about. I don't remember. Uh, yeah, they you, did. Okay, you're the only one who has an accessory, basically, so this must mean something. The people who put us in this cube must have had a purpose for this. So they kind of go back to these numbers that they've been seeing, which are in the corridors between the cubes. And when I say corridor, it's more of a little hatch. Yeah. It's like about two feet deep, long between the different sections of the cube. And there have been some numbers stamped in here, like three three-digit numbers in each one. Yeah, they look like serial numbers, which yeah. is what I kind of thought that they were at first. Yeah. So there's that explanation. They figure out that each num- each room has uh, its own number, like the rooms are numbered. Somehow she comes up with the notion that any room that's marked, like you said, each one, it's a s- three sets of three-digit numbers. And if any one of those three-digit numbers is prime then that means that the room is trapped. And um, that's how they navigate for a while, and it works for a while. Ultimately, somebody, uh, I think it's Quentin, goes into a room that they have deemed safe and is almost killed, but somehow kind of implausibly escapes the trap um, and comes back in. And so they realize that that's not been the case. As What I, that I was thinking about as I was watching this movie was, it's there's a lot of math now math wasn't <laughs> my strong suit but they convinced me well enough that there was kind of this intricate pattern for these numbers that did have some significance and i couldn't even begin to explain to you what it is but like yeah. they do like they they go out of their way you know it's Uh, some of the numbers plus some of the numbers minus some of the numbers. And if it all comes out to these factorials, whatever, whatever. And ultimately I think that the movie just does a really good job of faking it. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Because nobody's going to actually really try to test out this math theory. Yeah. And I read that in fact, that's true. Like they do figure out this, equation or, or whatever it is but uh you know the stuff that i was reading says that it it, it really mathematically doesn't work out uh, in the movie they they play it like it does and i bought it i'm no mathematician so <laughs> i'll take your word for it good job with math yeah good try <laughs> i read a mathematician actually helped them work this out but maybe it wasn't a very good one I don't know. But like you said, uh, that's we just have to take them to face value with this. And it really all kind of leans on Levin being a math whiz. And so you also kind of wonder, does everybody here have a purpose? Like whoever put them in this cube, 
were they all put here for a reason? Like, were they given a fighting chance, you know? Uh, was this like some kind of Saw-type scenario or whatever? So she's kind of going through trying to figure out this math, and when Quentin almost dies, uh, he ends up picking a fight with Worth for no really good reason except he just doesn't like his looks. And I think this, again, is supposed to be that, oh, he's a police officer or something to him seems fishy about Worth, so he just starts pushing and pushing and pushing him until Worth finally springs out and says, there's no way out. And everyone looks at him and says, well, how do you know that? And you must know something. And it turns out that Worth is the guy who designed the outer part of this cube. He said, I'm an, I'm an engineer or whatever, and I designed, or architect or whatever, and I designed the outer shell. Uh, he tells Levin how large is it, and uh, she's able to work out the dimensions as to how many of these cubes would be in here. It'd be like 26 by 26 by 26 which means there are just like a thousand of, the, of rooms in here, thousands of rooms yes, in here. Yes, 17,576 rooms, which, uh, which is crazy. <laughs> is crazy, and, and then again, that also makes the movie even less plausible when you, right. when you come to it, because then it becomes this case of where it turns out these rooms are shifting. There's this noise that gets made every now and then, this mechanical noise. It turns out that these these rooms are constantly shifting. And so even though they're trying to work their way through it, the rooms are moving. Through a dialogue uh, that, again, I didn't really buy, and you alluded to it earlier, Worth just basically surmises that if he didn't really know what he was working on, because he didn't know anything else about this thing. He just was, was was hired to design the outer part, and that's it, and he was paid a bunch of money for it, and that's all he knows then he surmises that everybody working on this project didn't know what little piece they were working on. And uh, then he makes this leap that there's nobody in charge. This may be hard for you to understand, but there is no conspiracy. Nobody is in charge. It's, it's a headless blunder operating under the illusion of a master plan. Can you grasp that? Big Brother is not watching you. I mean, somebody might have known sometime before they got, they got fired or voted out or sold it. But if this place ever had a purpose, then it got miscommunicated or, or, or lost in the shuffle. I mean, this is an accident, a, a forgotten perpetual public works project. You think anybody wants to ask questions? All they want is a, is a clear conscience and a fat paycheck. I mean, none of that makes sense because somebody's got to put the damn thing together at the end of the day. Yeah. And it, test it's it. All very sil- <laughs> yeah. It's, it's all very philosophical and, and frankly, pretentious. Yes. <laughs> it it kind of just comes down to this, why does anybody do anything? Well, because they can. You know, like, mm-hmm. why would somebody make this to put people in? Oh, well, because they can. And Holloway says, but you... But why put people in it? Well, because that's what it's for. Like, <laughs> yeah, n- no particular reason. And, and it just it does. It just becomes I don't know. I don't think that giving us a reason would have made me like it better. In fact, maybe would have cheapened it to some extent. I think part of the purpose of the movie is it's a mystery. Just yeah. Well, it's just like the exploration of how these people respond why it's happening is not as important as just the fact that it is. And let's see what happens. But the other thing that kind of bothers me is there is that indication that everybody's in there for a reason, but we never really know why everybody's in there. Yeah. And, and like you, you said the initial conceptualization was that it was, you know, all of these people trapped in hell. And, and so you wonder if maybe for the guy worth who created this, if this is some sort of punishment, punishment. Or, yeah. Yeah, or, or something along those lines. But I have no idea why Holloway's in there unless it's just because she has medical experience. So maybe she can help people, but she doesn't really No. And is Quentin in there just to kind of be the wild card? Maybe <laughs> I don't understand whatever his purpose is. And the sixth person who we haven't mentioned yet is a guy named Kazan, who uh, is played by a guy named Andrew Miller, who's the only name that I even wrote down because I didn't recognize any of these actors. Um, but the reason that I wrote his name down was because I thought he did a really good job. He plays um, a development, developmentally disabled person. I, I think that what he was going for was autism. Yeah, it seems to be. I was really impressed. I, I thought that he played it very well in a very believable and not 
cartoonish kind of way. I've worked with many young people with autism and, you know, he was displaying a lot of the kinds of behaviors that um, a lot of the kids that I've worked with display. And, and it, it's not, he doesn't do it in, a, in an exploitive way. It's, it's not um, making fun. It's not to be laughed at. I, I was really impressed by his performance. And we find out his purpose. The reason eventually, uh, again, they realize that the math equation is even more complex than they thought before. Um, and Quentin gets all ticked off and is yelling at Levin, you, you should be able to figure this out. You're the mathematician. And she basically says, this equation, whatever it is, is too complex. I can't just do it in my head. Nobody could do it in their head. And then Kazan comes up with the an- answers. Yeah. So he's like a savant. Yeah, he's a savant. And, and so then he becomes very useful in, in helping them get through I guess ultimately what they figure out, because they get in this one room that um, appears to be room 27 or something, which Levin says doesn't make any sense because if this is a 26 by 26 cube, there should not be a room 27. It doesn't make any sense. But they just kind of keep moving along nonetheless. They're trying to get to the edge, which logically makes sense. Like keep moving in one direction. Eventually we'll get to the edge. But uh, eventually, I guess what she realizes once they realize, because they hear that noise, this grumbling noise at various time intervals. And what they eventually realize is that the rooms are shifting. And she realizes that it's like a combination lock. It starts out in one position and then it cycles through a cycle until it eventually cycles about around to the start position and in the start position that 27th room is on the outside of the cube it's Mm -hmm. it's like a A a gate a bridge from the cube to the outside of the shell um and so then they you know once they realize that then they (laughs) frustratingly have to get back to that room that they passed who knows how long ago. And again, I don't even really understand this because like they passed that room a long time ago. And if the thing is moving around, how do they know how to get back to it? Yeah. <laughs> maybe, maybe it's math. <laughs> it's, it's some weird math. I mean, it doesn't make a lot of sense because she talks about the Cartesian coordinates, right? So each of these permanently stamped numbers in the rooms are supposed to give the coordinates. They're only going to give the coordinates of the starting point. So how is she navigating through this constantly shifting box of rooms using the numbers that only tell the starting point just to get back there? I guess what she's trying to do is is just hope that they stumble upon this room or hope that the things that are shifting around are somewhat close together so they can move in that direction. But then again, also they're they're stymied by the fact that some of these rooms are trapped. So they don't you know it's not just strictly a navigation uh, problem. But it's also, well, you know, maybe the room you need is, is over on the other side of this, this room next to you. But if that room's trapped, you can't get through it. So they do end up actually at a point where they end up going through a trapped room on purpose. This is before they figured out, I think, that things were shifting around, but they thought they were getting close to the edge. Yeah. So this room, this is kind of the set piece, I think, of the movie, really. It's supposed to be uh, this room that's sound activated. And of course, um, Kazan, you know, they're, it's, it's, it's a down room. It's one below them. So they're all sitting around the hatch and Kazan's going, uh, and yeah, he has verbal tics. Yeah. And, you know, then all of a sudden all these, uh, <laughs> uh, early nineties or mid nineties CGI, <laughs> uh, wires cut across the room. And so they realize they can get through the room if they can all just be really quiet. Now, they even answer the question, well, why does opening the door to the room not set these off? And they're like, well, maybe it's programmed to ignore that. So that neatly solves the problem of opening and closing the doors in the room uh, being an issue. So there's this big set piece. And now suddenly Kazan, who has these verbal tics, is able to control them. Right. Uh, and furthermore, there's a fight, first of all, and it's significant. There's a fight because Quentin's like, there's no way this guy's going to even continue to come with us because he's just a liability, especially in this freaking sound-trapped room. He's going to get us all killed. And Holloway's, no, like, we can't leave anybody behind. How could you? This is an awful thing. 
And they're like, well, we'll come back for him. And then, you know, Holloway's like, you know, that's a lie and blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. Well, anyway, they end up deciding to let him go through. But <laughs> there he is with his hands over his mouth, sitting at the edge where he was before. <laughs> making the noise. Making the noise. Yeah. Like, well, okay, at least move him to like two rooms up or something like right. that. Like, get him out of there. You already know yelling into this thing is going to set it off for everybody else. So, Yeah, and but... To be fair, I thought that this was the most tense part of the movie. This yes. was kind of the only part of the movie where I was kind of holding my breath on the edge of my seat. It's so true. Like, are they going to get through here? At the same time, it was really frustrating to me because um, Worth goes first, and <laughs> apparently they don't need to check the hatches in this one. They like, just, just going to guess. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just opens one. So they eat. He, he gets he gets one of the other hatches open and he like sets up a, he props it open with a shoe or something um, and then the rest of them start coming I, I think I don't know Levin goes at some point Holloway goes at some point but right before Kazan is going to come in Holloway and Worth are waiting for him in the room like, right <laughs> like go wait in the other room. Yeah. Like <laughs> it doesn't make any sense that you would be in that room where the spikes shoot it out of the walls, like go in the other room and get him to come that way. That way, at least if he on purpose or inadvertently makes a noise, he's the only one that gets it. But yeah. And, and then it also frustrated me because like worth is standing there. Like he has to be in there to like direct them. Like they can't figure out, where the open hatch is like yeah they can see it like you don't need to stand there and like point to it yeah but then when holloway comes down she stands there by him and he's like gesturing for her to go and she points at kazan like no i'm waiting for him but she totally vocalized something in there yeah you and like what is wrong with you like i i guess you're just hoping that if you're really quiet like it won't hear you like why would you even take that risk it doesn't make any sense it was a little implausible yeah in in that regard the way it was played out and and there's more tension where like kazan does get down there but then he's walking along and his pants like get caught on the, the thing that they have to turn to open the bottom hatch but he gets off of it but in the process of getting off of it he actually kind of turns it and so then the last one to come through is quentin and I don't know, like, was he going to fall through the trap or it kind of opened underneath him or something? And he just avoids, like, falling through or something. I don't know. But Kazan, excited that the guy is getting through or something. I don't know. He verbalizes again. And then Quentin is able to, like, quickly enough swing his way through the open door, which is dumb. Like, yeah, it, it was instantaneous every other time there was a noise. But he has time to react and like swing his way out just in time. Yeah. But at least it was tense. <laughs> it's true. It was tense. And, but you're right. You just kind of had those problems where you're going, really? So, uh, yeah, they get through. And that's like you said, it's probably the most tense. Oh, it's for sure. The most tense scene of the movie in a movie where you figured there'd be more tense scenes uh-huh. for a movie. That's really dependent on this idea that there are all these booby trapped rooms. We don't get a lot of that right? Yeah. We get a little bit of it at the beginning. We have this one room here and the rest of it's just them fighting in the rooms that they're, they're safe in because they figured out how to find the safe rooms. Anyway, uh, they finally do get to the edge and uh, even though they're wrong about the coordinates and things and things are constantly shifting, they're, I guess, right enough to make it to the edge and they open it up and sure enough, there's this huge gap uh, between the outer shell and the cube structure that they're in basically Holloway volunteers uh, to try to swing across it using a rope that they make by taking all their shirts off and tying them together. And so the whole team lowers her down on a rope so that she can get kind of enough length to try to swing across to the other side, push herself off and swing across the other side. Of course, it doesn't work. There's nothing for her to latch onto or hold onto on that other side, or she can't even reach it. Then there's this bit where something slips and uh, she almost falls falls down. And at the last second, Quentin yanks, grabs the very end of the rope as it's falling out of that hole, and somebody grabs his legs, and he's, and they're able to save her. So she climbs up the rope, and Clinton gives her his hand. But then he looks at her and starts to have second thoughts and decides to drop her instead. So right. 
Quentin, because he had a big disagreement with her earlier, decided to just off her right then and there. Well, and that's the thing, like tension has been building between them. And when I say between them, really just between Quentin and the rest of them, because he's starting to lose it. And he's getting very angry and very irrational and violent um, with all of them. He's pounded on worth several times at this point. Uh, and he's been in a big, nasty fight with Holloway, the one that he drops at this point. I don't know. First of all, the whole let's swing on our clothes thing was like the stupidest idea ever. <laughs> I guess. <laughs> what else? What are you going to do? Yeah. What right. Else could exactly. They do? Then he catches her. And then, you know, it's so dramatic project it like, yeah, I mean, <laughs> like he pulls her up and, you know, they do a close up on her face and she's so happy and then she looks at him as like oh no and it cuts back to him and he's obviously super like, pissed oh, ah. i'm mean and crazy now mm-hmm. um, Got crazy and he eyes. lets her go and and it's the 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 movie projects this so much not just in his performance but like his lips are getting all chapped like he he looks like he's yeah going crazy losing it right and he wasn't far from it to begin with i mean the moment he woke up in there he's overacting basically (laughs) and intense so it's not a lot of build really it's not like you see this guy slowly go crazy you kind of had the uh, the idea from the beginning this guy was the loose cannon and he was going to cause problems right so but they they keep going along um i don't remember i feel like at this point then they're like well we found the edge well let's now try to go down and 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 like there's lots of fighting and and quentin is beating up worth and at one point he throws worth down through one of the bottom hatches and worth ends up like he that guy worth i think he would have been dead like yeah. 20 minutes He's before they actually kill him made of rubber or something i know <laughs> Um, Quentin throws him down into this room and then all you hear is this laughing and so they all crawl down there and they realize that they're back in the room that they started in right because the the body of uh, Ren is there and it's at that point I think that Levin figures out that they're moving and they need to find that 27th room and so they go looking for it and um, at some point Quentin is coming in last always and at some point once everybody's through worth like jams the the hatch up as quentin's coming through it so it's like got his like neck pinned and they run away and get away from him um and they're looking you know to find the room by themselves which they eventually do and then of course irony of all ironies levin realizes that the room that they've been looking for all along the bridge was literally the first room that they found because her glasses broke right off the bat and she found a piece of her glasses in that room yeah and she had said she had said from the beginning because everybody quentin's like we got to move we got to move and she's like no let's just stay here somebody will come for us and he's like nobody's coming for us um so of course they did leave and have been gone this whole time and she's like i knew it like we should have (laughs) just this was it we should have stayed here the whole time but of course how would anybody have known that yeah well, and the other thing, you know, that when you talk about the shifting of these rooms, they talk about how massive this thing is, right? 17,000 mm-hmm. or so things. And somebody rightly says, well, if all these rooms are shifting, it must take days for yeah. these to shift back to their original position. So, okay, well, how many days have they been in there? You know, I mean, uh, it right. doesn't seem like that long. Uh, it's not really told to us in the movie, but they just kind of have to assume. And and it turns out they don't have to worry too much about that because by the time they get to that bridge room, uh, it's almost where it needs to be. Uh, and they they figured this out. Um, but when they're there, suddenly there's there's kind of a moment, I think, between Levin, the girl, and Worth, mm-hmm. the guy. Mm-hmm. Worth, for some reason, decides he doesn't want to leave. Right. Uh, he, I guess he's supposed to feel guilty, but it's a combination of maybe feeling guilty about being a part of making this thing, even though he didn't know. Uh, but also, you know, his sad story is just there's nothing waiting for him on the other side. You know, it's just nobody. Right. Else. He's alone. And so he's just like, I'll just stay here. And she's right. Yeah, OK, whatever. And so and so she, uh, you know, is, is kind of phasing him like, no, you can't. you got to come with us. Why would you give up now? And at that point, suddenly her head flies back and uh, a big spike comes up through her chest. And it, there is Quentin who has made it back to them. And he's all covered in blood now. Yeah, like, like 
<laughs> like, what has this guy been through in the last seven minutes since we saw him? <laughs> I know. And how did he find his own way? I mean, it's kind of it's kind of crazy. Anyway, yeah. So yeah, he's uh he kills her he, uh, her. Then he almost it looks like he about kills <laughs> Worth. I mean, I think he stabs him a few times in the he stomach does, yeah. or something. And they're yelling at uh, Kazan, go through the hatch, go through the hatch, because by now, um, you know, the, the hatch is open and they can see into the other room, which is, I the, guess, the bridge room. And, uh, yeah, and, and it's just like this bright light. Mm-hmm. Um, you don't really see what's out there. So he goes, uh, starts to go into the hatch, but Quentin grabs his legs and tries to pull him back in. Uh, at the same time, uh, it seems like he's going to be successful. Worth grabs Quentin's legs from this side. And what basically happens is Quentin is now straddling uh, the break between the rooms, and here comes a shift, uh, and that mm-hmm. bridge room slides up and over and down and uh, slices uh, Quentin, which was it was sad. We got all this great, um, these great bloody, gross effects for some of these other interesting kills earlier in the movie, and here is the big, big bad guy, and we don't even really get to see but a blood smear on the wall to imply that he's gone, you know? You're right, uh, right. <laughs> just a budget thing probably, but... Yeah. <laughs> and then and then Worth is left alone and now the you know he's obviously going to die cuz the rooms have shifted again um but you know he's got this self-satisfied grin like uh-huh. ah well at least I killed that jerk. <laughs> and you see Kazan you know standing on the bridge whatever that means at the other end it's just this bright white light and he stand because they took off all their clothes to make the rope or whatever and so he's just there like in his white undershorts and undershirt and i feel like it's supposed to be symbolic like he's the innocent one and that's why he made it made it out or whatever deserved it or something and he goes walking towards the light and uh then that's just it they cut it out and and I read that they filmed a scene that followed that showing what was outside the cube. And the director said, when we got to editing, that was the very first thing I cut. Um, oh. He said, I thought that, you know, it was far better if we didn't know, if the audience didn't know what was out there and what was going to happen and what was all behind it. It kind of leaves it this mystery. And I have to say, I... Agree. I I think that was the wisest choice because whatever else it might have been, I I think it would have been a letdown. I don't I don't know what it could have been out there that I would have been like, oh, (laughs) Uh so I I don't know. Well, who knows? You know, as far as we know, it could be heaven. Who knows what it could be? Yeah, I do. I do like that final image of. Kazan just kind of shuffling towards the light. I thought it was an interesting way to go. Yeah, I don't know. I th- I felt like it was a bit of a cop out, and uh, and I didn't really care for it too much, especially because, like I said, uh, it's not like you have to solve the central mystery of the movie, but because all of the Lord of the Fly stuff was just so unsatisfying and a little contrived and improbable and poorly acted. <laughs> Sorry, that's kind of how I felt about it. You know, it just I I was I was hoping for something to to walk away from the movie with a little something like, oh, that's interesting or whatnot. But I kind of expected to not know. I mean, I really expected not to know. I I figured it would be that kind of film. So I wasn't too surprised about that. You know, it's funny too, because so he's the, he's the one to live. Like you said, he's sort of the innocent one, which begs the question, well, then why the hell was he in there? Right. Is this truly like this? It's not a truly random thing. You know, we're not, I don't think we're supposed to philosophize that this is truly 100% this corporate bureaucratic thing and people just get plucked from nowhere to put in here because we see that there is a bit of a method to it. You've got the, the woman who's good at math. You have the the guy who can break out of prison. You have the the dude who can actually do math in his head. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you have the doctor who can take care of people. And you have Worth who um, knows the cube, right? So Right. So, you know, why why did he survive? Oh, did, I guess he's the most deserving of it. But then again, he clearly wasn't deserving of being put in there in the first place. Right. And, and which also leaves Quentin. And so he's the cop. And we kind of see he's unhinged from the beginning. But there's a, a reference a little earlier that maybe Holloway, the doctor, knows a little bit more about him because she says something about him liking young girls. And then he accuses uh-huh. her of knowing a little too much about him. So once again, there's sort of like this sort of sin implied uh, that there's a reason he's in there too. 
So it's a little inconsistent there, or there's just a logic I'm not getting, you know? Or maybe it's part of the whole experiment. It's like uh, you get the one innocent guy in there who should hopefully live. I don't know. (laughs) I don't know either. And and I feel like the way that we've been talking about it for the last 45 minutes or whatever, one might think that I didn't like the movie and that's not true. I did. I actually think that it's a a really clever premise and is the acting great? No, but this is a low budget Canadian film. Again, I don't, I don't know any of these actors. I, I didn't even look them up because I knew I didn't recognize any of them. Um, I, I know that some of them have done some TV and stuff like that. So it's, it's not necessarily the case that they're complete amateurs, but, um, these aren't, you know, like big name folks that you would have major expectations of or anything. And most of it was shot with a handheld camera and it was all shot in this one room. And that could have been so tedious and just little decisions like changing the color of the room from room to room. Um, I, I thought, you know, I, I got the sense of them moving through space. Right. It didn't feel like they were always in the exact same room. That was good. The visuals were good. You know, a lot of the visuals in this movie were quite good and and well done. And it feels and, and I don't mean this as a criticism. It feels in many ways like a play. You've got, you know, this really confined space, this really limited set piece and a lot of dialogue. And that's kind of what what drives it forward. In fact, I can see, you know, if somebody had a really cool, a great budget and some really cool technical opportunities, it could be a play. Yeah. Uh, and that m- might potentially be interesting. I, I, again, I don't remember. I didn't go back and watch the sequel and the prequel, but of course they do build on the mythology and you do get a little bit more information about maybe, I don't think that there's ever a really clear explanation of specifically who is behind all of this, but I, I think there's more exploration of it. And I think that it, it, you know, it's some big entity, whether it be a government or some sort of corporate entity or something, and and it's nefarious, and you know, they explore that in in the sequel and in the prequel. And like I said, the the sequel is more high tech. The prequel is less high tech because I think, if I remember correctly, the prequel is supposed to be the Cuban its initial incarnation, and so it's it's less technological, oh. um, and and kind of more uh, simply mechanical and and that kind of stuff. I remember liking the second one quite a bit, if I remember correctly, and I could be totally wrong. I think I remember the prequel being a little bit tedious and boring, but that could just be my failing memory. I don't know. But I do. I, I, I think that for the premise alone, it's interesting and, and worth watching. It is a little bit heavy handed and it does leave some things to be desired. But I think that the premise is strong enough to make it worth at least one viewing and, and people talk about it. You know, I've heard people talk about it and um, it does have kind of a cult uh, following. And and I understand why, because it is unique uh, and I appreciate that. Yeah. Well, it's definitely unique. And like you said, yeah, it, 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 What more can I say? I don't really have anything else to say about the cube. (laughs) 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 I just, uh, I, I, I didn't really I didn't really enjoy I'm trying, it. I'm trying to be nice. I, you I are. Feel, <laughs> I feel like we, I don't know, because I didn't hate it. I don't think it's a bad movie, and I'm glad that somebody recommended it because I have, I've sat down and watched it probably two or three times. So it's, it's obviously there's something there that holds my interest. It's hard. It's like, you know, and it's kind of like I said before, we've seen so much worse. So it's hard to come down on it too hard, right? You know, um, mm-hmm. uh, even with the shoddy acting and, you know, kind of a lot of implausibility. But for me, it, I guess it just wasn't my cup of tea. I, I, I actually, this kind of movie generally is my cup of tea. I mean, these very high concept, puzzly sort of kind of movies. I like those sort of Lord of the Fly type situations. They can run thin after a while, like the freaking walk. Walking Dead, you know, where I basically quit watching that because it was the same thing over and over again. Just, oh, people can't get along. Big surprise. But uh, this movie didn't go that far. 
but it just didn't go far enough in the realm of plausibility for me uh, to, to, to be super interesting. So that whole Lord of the Flies aspect of it just was kind of kind of fell flat, and uh, the puzzle aspect of the movie wasn't strong enough or comprehensible enough <laughs> to, to keep my interest either. It's not like I felt like I could follow along with them and do all these math equations and, you know, and help them figure it out. So, <laughs> Right, that's true. It reminds me of a movie um, from 2015 called Circle. Have you seen this movie? I think I saw it on Netflix. No. Um, all of these people, and there's a bunch of them. I don't remember how many of them there are, but it's a much larger group. They wake up standing on these platforms in a circle facing one another, and they realize that if they step down off uh, of the circle, they get killed, they get electrocuted or something. And um, they finally come to realize, again, it's like a time interval thing where every few minutes or so, there's like a noise and they have these buzzers in their hands and they have to vote for who will be the next one to die. Oh, and if they don't and if they don't vote, somebody just dies at random. And, and I, it's like they figure out it's going to be a last man standing kind of thing. And I liked that movie. You should check that oh, one out. That sounds interesting. Yeah, but it's, it's all very much like that. Again, it's just all these people standing around on a dark st- soundstage for the whole thing and talking through, you know, all the moral quandaries that go along with that. Because, of course, there are old people, there are sick people, there are children, mm. there's a pregnant woman. And, like, how do you decide oh, who's man. worthy of uh, being alive? <laughs> totally different movie, but it reminded me of this. So <laughs> I think I'd see, I I'd see Circle over Cube. <laughs> yeah, okay. Fair enough. <laughs> Well, thank you so much for listening to another episode. Thanks for requesting The Cube. Uh, If you enjoyed this podcast, please share it with a friend. You can find us on Facebook. You can search for us online. Just Google us, Two Guys in a Chainsaw, and we're everywhere your favorite podcasts are to be streamed, downloaded, or otherwise found. You can also visit our website, twoguys.red40net.com, and you can uh, access all of our past episodes, stream them online or download them there as well, and leave us a note there on our Facebook page and let us know what you think. Until next time, I'm Todd. And I'm Craig. With two guys and a chainsaw. Chainsaw.